Bibles, uh, please turn with me to um, Isaiah chapter 52. And um, we're going to continue our study in the shadows of Golgotha. This is week, um, I think it's 45 or 46, we are going through the Old Testament to study about pictures of the cross in the Old Testament. And we started last week talking about Isaiah, yeah, which part in Isaiah? The Isaiah 53, we start talking about the, 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 the suffering servant, the Isaiah 53. And we said that this is one of the most important passages in the Old Testament that pretty much tells us about Jesus and how he's going to die for us on the cross as our uh, substitute sacrifice. Um, I told you last week, guys, if you can, uh, to start memorizing that chapter. We're going to be in Isaiah 53 for a few weeks. So um, if you can memorize it, that would be great. It's going to be a blessing to your life. So maybe this week you just can focus on these three verses that we're going to be studying today. Isaiah 52, 13 to 15. If you can work on it this week, that would be great. Um, last week we uh, actually stopped at the very first phrase of that song when God said, when God introduced his son Jesus and he said, Behold or see my servant, right? And we talked about Christ being, even though he's the son of God, he willingly chose to humble himself to become the servant of God. Amen? I think the best way we're going to go about Isaiah 53 is just really take it word for word for word as much as we can. It's just so good. And we're going to try to focus on every single word in that song and see how is that uh, tell us about Jesus and about the, the cross and what he has endured for us on the cross. So today we're going to read Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15. If you remember from last week, the song has five stanzas, and this is stanza number one. This is the first verse in that five-verse song. So Isaiah 52, 13 to 15. This is how God is introducing Christ, his son, his servant. Behold my servant, see my servant, will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were applauded at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouth because of him. For for that they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Amen? Amen. So we uh, stopped last week at Behold My Servant. Today we're going to just take it word for word and try to proceed through that song. And God says, Behold my servant, he will act wisely, right? Now, that Hebrew word here that is used, will act wisely, can carry uh, one of two different meanings. It can mean he will act wisely or he will possess wisdom or it simply means he shall prosper. Amen? Both meanings are um, in the Old Testament. We have both a lot of scripture to support both meanings. Acting wisely, kind of the primary meaning of that word. And then, um, and then prosper is like the secondary meaning of that word. But I honestly think that 
will prosper probably is the right word that God is saying here. He's, God is introducing his servant that will accomplish his plan, will accomplish his purposes. So God is like from the get-go is kind of telling us, hey, look, my servant will prosper. He will do everything that I have intended for him to do. So even though both meanings are plausible, I think will prosper is more accurate for me, at least here. If you're going to go with will act wisely, the idea here is this. My servant will accomplish my purposes and he will be very wise in every step in the way to reach to that goal. That would be the meaning that God is trying to imply here. Again, either way, um, will act wisely or will prosper works, but will prosper is uh, more accurate here. So God is saying my servant will succeed in the, the mission that I have commissioned him to do. And it's not just he will prosper, but look what God said about him afterward. He will be raised and he will be lifted up and he will be exalted. Amen. So God is using three different words here to tell us how his servant will be lifted up. The idea here is God is trying to tell us that the servant, his, his son Jesus, after the suffering of death, he will be exalted so high, so much high, to the highest level ever possible. That's why God used three different words to emphasize the fact that his servant will be exalted way high. Amen? And we see that in the New Testament. We see that multiple times, how Jesus, after he suffered the death on the cross, he will also lift it up too high, the highest level possible. We see that he was lifted up to the right hand of God multiple times. Acts 2.33, Acts 5.31. We see that Jesus was lifted up above all powers. That's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1. He has been lifted up above all principalities and powers and all dominions and every name to be named. Not only in this age but also in the one to come. That's in Ephesians 1.21. Amen. And in Philippians 2, Paul also tells us that Jesus, who went all the way down and was obedient to the point of death, the death of the cross, has been lifted up. And God has given him the name that is above every name, that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Amen. So what God has told us about his son Jesus in the Old Testament, how he will be lifted up to the highest place, we see that so many times in the New Testament as well. That the very Christ who was debased to the lowest level has been lifted up to the highest level. Amen? Amen. And then we move on to verse 14. And the Hebrew structure here is a little bit difficult. It, it goes like this, just as so-so, like the Hebrew goes like this, just as many were astonished, so his appearance was marred, so he will sprinkle many nations. So that structure in Hebrew goes through verse 14 and verse 15. And it is kind of hard to really follow what exactly they're trying to say. But the main point here is this. That God in, 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 in here, in, in Isaiah 52, when he's introducing his servant, he's trying to introduce a massive contrast between how low the servant Christ, his son, has, has become and how high he will be lifted up. Amen? So let's read these two verses together. Here is how it says, Just as there were many who were astonished at him, 
or at you. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human beings and his form marred beyond that of any human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouth because of him. Look at this. Look at the massive contrast. What God was saying is this. Just as my servant was so disfigured from the beating and from the, the torture that he has endured, so much so that people were in shock. They were in shock at, at the torture that he is endured, so much so that they could not even open their mouth to say anything. And as much as he was put that much down, he also will be lifted high so much so that he will sprinkle and cleanse many nations that kings, because of their awe of what he has been and how high he has been lifted up, they also will shut their mouth. They will not be able to say anything in his presence. You guys follow that the thought here? So... People, when they saw Jesus being so put down and so tortured because of the shock of how much he's tortured, they cannot open their mouth and say anything, right? That's how low he got. But look how high he's been exalted. Not people, but kings, right? Will see how high he's exalted. And they also will be shocked, not because of the torture, but because of the awe of how high he has been lifted up so much so they still cannot also open their mouth to say anything in his presence. Amen? Amen. From the ultimate debasement to the highest exaltation. This is what happened to Jesus through the cross and the resurrection and the ascension before God. Amen? Amen. Just as he was disfigured so much so that you cannot even tell he's a human being. So also he will sprinkle many nations and uh, many kings will not even be able to open their mouth in his presence. Amen? Amen. Number, let's move on. He, it says, just as many were applauded, astonished at him or at you. Actually, that word applauded here or astonished, we see it one more time again um, in, in Ezekiel 27.35 where we see that people were astonished at the destruction that happened in the city of Tyre so much so that they are so amazed how this great city has been ruined so much that they just astonished. I love how uh, Dwayne Lindsay, the guy that I'm relying heavily here on his exegesis of that part, how he worded this, how he worded the word astonished. Look at this. I bolted it because it's just so good. The people who would look at the servant on the cross will be petrified by paralyzing astonishment and stupidifying surprise at his deep abasement and degradation. It's like they're going to be shocked because he has been so disfigured. He has been so put down. He has been so degraded, too much so that they're going to be paralyzed by that massive shock. That's pretty much what the point of that word here. They will be astonished at you. We see this word astonished in Hebrew also many times associated with, with the astonishment that you, when you see people are punished by God and how you look at them and say, wow, they have been really, really punished. 
And that makes sense because later on in Isaiah 53, we see that, that the Jewish people, they look at the servant and say, oh, we thought that he was smitten and stricken by God for his own sins, right? So it's the exact same thought here that people are being punished by God for their own sins, that, that the pain and the, the, the discipline that they're going through is so hard that other people look at them in astonishment. And that's the attitude of the people when they looked at Christ at the cross. They really thought that he deserved that, that he, did, he actually sinned and he was punished by God. Now, finally here, this word, they were astonished. It, the Hebrew actually said they were astonished at you, not at him. And there's a change here because God started by introducing his servant as the third person, right? He said, behold, my servant, he will do this, he will do that. And then he switched and he said, nations, many people will be astonished at you. So he's changed from the third person to the second person. And that's pretty common, actually. That's not a big deal. It's pretty common in uh, the songs of the servants in the book of Isaiah. A couple of times we see God switch from the third person to the second person. I think it's more poetry than any problem with the grammar or the text or anything like that. Amen? But the idea here is this. This is the main point that I want you to get, that people who looked at Christ on the cross, being the servant of God, being punished by God, they were paralyzed by this astonishment because how disfigured and how degraded he has become. Amen? Now let's move on. And it says here, they were astonished at you. Why were the people astonished at the servant? Because of this. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, from any human being, and his form beyond human likeness. This is an amazing phrase that God is saying here. The word for appearance here that God uses is the Hebrew word mar'a. I'm not sure... Uh, Brother Emmanuel, that makes sense to you. It's the same thing in Arabic. It literally means his, the sight, what your eyes behold, the scenery. That's, that's literally what the word means. The looks, the sight, what your eyes behold. And that's what God is saying here. When you look at him, whatever you see in him, that whatever you see was so disfigured. And then it also goes on to say his form was also disfigured. And the form here is literally the figure of the outline or his body shape, how he looked like as a human being that was disfigured as well. So the idea here is, is emphasizing that Jesus on the cross was so disfigured, was so marred, so much so beyond that of any human being. Amen? The word that God used here to describe how his son would be so disfigured on the cross, it it's, again means deformed, marred, disfigured. And we see it one more time only in the whole Bible. We see it only in Leviticus 22:25. That's the only other time in the scripture where we see this word. And it says this, and you must not accept such animals. Now God is commanding Moses and he said, you must not accept such animals from the hand of a foreigner and offer them as food of your God. They will not be accepted on your behalf because they are deformed and they have defects. So God said in the book of Leviticus this, if you have a, a, a sacrifice, a lamb or something like that, that has a short leg or a messed up eye, this, it's deformed, it's disfigured. You cannot take that animal and offer it to God because it has deformation in it. Amen? Yet that is exactly how God has described his son on the cross. He was disfigured, he was deformed. Amen? So much so, and look, 
the parallel in the two phrases after that is just amazing. He was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and beyond any human likeness. The word beyond here that is in the Hebrew literally means far away from. So the idea here is this, the servant Jesus on the cross was deformed, was so disfigured, so much so that you cannot even tell that he belongs to the human race. That's literally what the Hebrew is trying to tell us. From the beating, from the scourging, from all the torture that Jesus has endured on the cross, you look at his outlines, you cannot tell, is this a human being or this is some other creature from a different race? Because this is how bad Jesus was disfigured on the cross. You're talking about being way down, amen? This is the lowest you can, you can be. You're not even belonging to the human race anymore because of all the beating and all the disfiguring and all the torture that he has endured on the cross. Amen? We talked about this before in Psalm 129 verse 3. This is what the psalmist says. This is a prophecy about Christ and it says, Blowmen have plowed on my back and made their furrows long. Right? Remember we talked about this? If you Till a land, the way you do it is you have that um, blow, and the blow has these long teeth. And the idea of the blow is this. It, it digs the teeth inside the soil, and it flips it upside, ups, inside, outside, right? So that is what is deep in the soil will actually be exposed outside. So this thing, the whole, this way the whole soil will be air. That's the whole point of blowing. Yet that's literally, Jesus said, this is literally what happened to my back. And that's literally what happened because of the scourging. The Romans will have these scourges, these lashes, these whips that will end up with pieces of stone and metal. And when they slashed Jesus, when they scourged him on his back, all this metal actually embedded in his muscle, in his skin. And then when they pull it out, it literally is like toiling, the, it's like tilling the land. All his muscles will be flipped inside out and you cannot even tell that he is a human being from all the torture that he has endured on the cross. Amen? When, when God said in the Old Testament that his servant would be disfigured, deformed, that was not just a figure of speech of the amount of torture that Jesus would endure on the cross. That is literally what happened to Christ on the cross. Amen? Amen. Why? Because he loves you and because he loves me. Amen? Because that was the price of our salvation. And he was gladly to be tortured to that point beyond that his form, his figure, his outlines of his body was so disfigured that you cannot even tell that he is a human being. Amen? I mean, we can talk about the, the description of all of this, but imagine the pain that Jesus has gone through to pay for our salvation. Amen? Aren't you thankful today? Amen. I am. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. See, Jesus did all of this. But the point of the song, again, is not how low the servant has become, but rather how high the servant has gotten to. Amen? So that's why it says that in as much as people were astonished, paralyzed by shock because of the deformation, because of the abasement of, of you, so much so you will be lifted high to the point that even not just regular people, but kings will be sprinkled, nations will be sprinkled by you, and kings will not be able to open their mouth in awe of how highly you have been exalted. Amen? Amen. 
Now let's look at that word sprinkle. Now this is a key word. Why? Remember I told you last week that some rabbis, some Jewish rabbis, they read that text and say this is about not Jesus. This is about Israel being the servant of God. Amen? So this word is key. Because up till very recent, every old translations, everybody agreed that this word is sprinkle. But then, very lately, some uh, people start translating this word as startled or like astonished or jumped with joy and amazement at you, kind of uh, to that effect. As a matter of fact, the NIV has startled at you in the footnote of the translation of that word. So this is a key word, and it's extremely important. Why? Because if the word just simply means jump of joy or astonished with happiness, it can be applied to anyone, right? It can be literally talking about Israel being the servant of God, and the nations are astonished at how God lifted Israel, right? But if the servant sprinkles people, sprinkles nation, which is an act only ascribed to God, as we're going to see in a little bit, then we can take Israel out of the picture because this word doesn't apply to human beings. Amen? So let's dig into this word and see, does it mean sprinkle or does it mean startled at you? Amen? So why people start questioning that word? The reason people start questioning that word is every time in the Bible, most of the time in the Bible we see that word, usually it says something like they sprinkled blood or they sprinkled upon people, some, like the blood. So there's only... This word is always followed by either the liquid that's being sprinkled or is followed by the pronoun upon before the people who are being sprinkled. You guys follow me? But it's not, that is not the constructions here. It says he sprinkled many nations, right? It doesn't say he sprinkled his blood on many nations. It doesn't say he sprinkled upon many nations. It just say he sprinkled many nations. Amen? And that's what starts getting people thinking. It's like, oh, maybe this word doesn't mean sprinkle because that construction in Hebrew is, is definitely not typical. And start, they start looking into it, and some people came up that this word is similar to um, an Arabic word that means leap or jump with joy. And they start translating that word instead of sprinkled. You say that nations will be startled at you instead of you shall sprinkle many nations. So much so that this actually is the exact same translation in the Septuagint. The, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it doesn't say sprinkled. It says many Gentiles will be marveled, will be astonished at you. So there's some like weight behind that translation, okay? But there's many problems with it, really. It is true that most of the time we see that verb sprinkled is followed by the liquid that is being sprinkled or by the word upon and then the people who are being sprinkled. But that is not 100% the case all the time. As a matter of fact, we see other examples in the Old Testament, in the Bible, where the word sprinkled is followed by the person who is being sprinkled. You guys follow me? Exodus 29, 21. And take some blood. This is what God commanded Moses. How he sanctifies Aaron. He said, and take some blood from the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle Aaron right away. So after the word sprinkle, it put the person who's being sprinkled. You guys follow me? So that's pretty much typical to what we see here in Isaiah 52. Sprinkle many nations. Sprinkle Aaron as we see in Exodus 29. So it is not super crazy. We're not, you know, it's not like it didn't happen before. Amen. 
We see the same uh, structure in, in Leviticus 14.7 and in Numbers 19.19. Same structure everywhere. So we see that before. That yes, for the most part, the word sprinkle is followed by the liquid that's being sprinkled or by the word upon and then the people who are being sprinkled. But this is not 100%. This is 90% of the cases. Amen? So that's point number one. Point number two, the, ob the objection that they look into an Arabic word, if the way they dig deeper into it, it is not really, uh, it is, it's linguistically subject. It is not a, like a 100% good solid argument. It's very debatable. It is not 100% sold out or anything like that. Actually, there's more problems with that linguistically than favors for it. So it's not really a strong argument or anything like that. Not to mention that the Masoretic text, which we talk about this all the time, I'm not sure if you guys remember all these big words, but these are the most reliable Hebrew manuscript in the Old Testament. They use the word sprinkle against the Septuagint that use the word marvel. Amen? Amen. You guys follow me so far? Yeah. Uh, number three, yes, the Septuagint. Go ahead. What is that? Naza? Yeah. Yeah? Uh, it's not, a, I'm. I'm not familiar with that word at all in Arabic. Um, I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's classic Arabic or something. I, I don't know it. Maybe, yeah. I, I'm not very familiar with that. I, yeah, it might be. I looked at that word. I didn't even know what it means, but I don't know. Anyways, the Septuagint, yes, it's a good translation, and it does give us a pretty good idea of how the Jews before Christ understood that text. But I told you guys before, it's not the most reliable, and we need to take it really like verse by verse basis, case by case basis, and dig into the text to see if the Septuagint is accurate or not. Again, it's, it's a good reference, but it's not inspired by God or anything like that. Amen? So why I'm saying all of this? Because if you end up talking to a Jewish person about Jesus and they tell you this is, you know, this is the, this chapter is about Israel, not about Christ, and they bring this up to you, you know where to find the answer. Amen? But Pastor Cammy, you're probably not going to do it. Well, that's not my problem. That's your problem. Go find the Jewish person and tell them about Jesus. Amen? All right. So uh, that's the word sprinkle here. It's more it's, that weight of the evidence it really is in favor of the word sprinkle than uh, startled at you. Amen? Now, let's move on to what does the word sprinkle mean? We talked about this before. As a matter of fact, if you remember when we talked about the power of the blood of Jesus, we had a whole sermon about the sprinkling blood, and we talked about what does that mean to sprinkle blood. So if you want, go back and look at it. But I'm just going to highlight two points here. What does it mean that the servant will sprinkle many nations? Two points. Number one, that the servant will atone for many nations. What does the word atonement mean? Atone. We've talked about this a lot. Cover. It literally means cover. Atone something to cover for it. When God atones for our sins, he covers our sins and he doesn't see it anymore. Amen? The day of atonement is literally the day of uh, covering. That's when the blood covered the sin of the nation of Israel once and for all and God doesn't see it anymore. Amen? And we see that. We see that the sprinkling of blood in the Old Testament is a function of the priest and the purpose of it is to atone, to cover the sins of the people. In Leviticus 16, we read about that. Pop quiz, what is Leviticus 16? What is that? What's in Leviticus 16? Major, major, major story. You spent three weeks talking about it. The day of uh, 
atonement. That's Leviticus 16. Amen? In Leviticus 16, we see that when God is telling us about the day of atonement, look at this, verse 15 and 16. He, Aaron, shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtains, take the blood very inside to the Holy of Holies, and do with it as he did with the bull's blood, which is what? He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover, the mercy seat, and in front of it, right? And when he sprinkles the blood, what happens? Look at this. In this way, by sprinkling the blood, he will make what? Atonement for the most holy place. He will make covering for the most holy place. So the sprinkling means atonement, means covering. Amen? But not only that, the sprinkling also is associated with the cleansing. We also see that in Leviticus 16. It talks about Aaron again. And it says, he shall sprinkle some of the blood on, its, uh, on it with his finger seven times to do what? To cleanse it. Do you see that? And to consecrate it. So when you sprinkle the blood, he atones. And the sprinkling also associated with that cleansing, right? And we see the same story in Numbers chapter 19, verses 18 to 21. Another pop quiz. What's the number 19? We talked about this. It is the law of the red heifer, right? That the author of Hebrews quoted that in Hebrews 9. And he said that if the blood of, of bulls and goats and the ashes of a red heifer sprinkled on the unclean cleanses them, how much more would the blood of Jesus cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Amen? And we see that again in, in Ezekiel 36. So the idea of sprinkling is associated mainly with these two things, to atone for the sins and to cleanse from the sins. Amen? Do you see then what God is trying to tell us about his servant? God is telling us that in as much as my son Jesus has willingly chosen the cross and he went down all the way down to the cross so much so that he endured so much torture that he was deformed, disfigured beyond any human being that you can look at the amount of pain that he endured and you cannot even tell that this is a human being. That very Jesus who went all the way down will be lifted up all the way high that he will, he himself, himself Jesus will sprinkle clean many nations with his own blood he'll cleanse people and he will atone for the sins of people amen, amen. and I want you to notice that sprinkling the blood is linked and based on on how low he has he has become right what I'm trying to tell you today is this. If you're here today and you don't know if your sins are forgiven before God, if you're here today and you don't know if you are cleansed before God, well, the servant of God today, the Lord Jesus Christ, can sprinkle you clean from every filth and every sin, clean your conscience, clean you from every wickedness and every sin. And not only that, but his blood can cover your sins before a holy and a righteous God once and for all. Amen? But this is only made available because Jesus went to the cross and he was defigured and he was deformed and he took the wrath of God on your behalf because of what he has done on the cross. He is able to cleanse you and forgive you today and save you once and for all. Amen? Amen. It's linked. You cannot take one away from the other. Amen? Amen? That is what happened to the servant. Now let's look at the last part. 
It says that he shall sprinkle many nations and kings shall shut their mouth because of him. Again, they're not going to shut their mouth because of the shock of his pain, but rather because of the awe of how exalted he has become. Amen? And then look at this, the last part. <clears throat> for that, for what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. What is the very first word in that phrase? Is the word for, right? So that means that what is coming behind it is really linked to what was before it, right? Something happened for this and that, right? So it says before that kings will shut their mouth in his presence. Why? For they will be told about it, right? Nations will be told about what he has done and how high he has been lifted up. And when they're told, they will understand how high he has been exalted. And that will make them shut their mouth in awe in his presence. Amen? So in a way, God is telling us there's two things here has to happen in order for the kings to really be in awe of how high Jesus was exalted, right? Number one, Jesus has to be able to sprinkle and be lifted up, right? If he was not exalted, then it doesn't matter if they were, the kings were told they will not be in awe of him anyways, right? If he was not exalted, they would not be in awe, but he has to be exalted. But number two, if Jesus was exalted and nobody told them that he was exalted, are they going to be in awe of him? No. So two things need to happen. Number one, Jesus needs to be exalted. The servant needs to be exalted. Number two, the nations and the kings need to be told. And when these two things happen together, that's when kings and nations will be in awe of the majesty and the exaltation of Christ. Amen? Amen. So it's important that we tell people about Jesus, right? That's what the whole point here. And we see how... In Isaiah 52, 15, that part talks about the kings and the nations. So it's talking about the Gentiles' nation coming to be in awe of Christ, right? And then we move on to Isaiah 53, 1 to 9. And now the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, is acknowledging their sins and how they have mistreated that servant of God and how he has laid upon himself all our iniquities. So we see in Isaiah 53 that Israel also is coming to know Jesus as the Messiah. The Gentiles in Isaiah 52, 15, and the, the nation of Israel in Isaiah 53, 1 to 9. Amen? You see the point here? That the whole world is coming to the point that they will know how Jesus was exalted and what he has accomplished and his atoning death for us on the cross so much so that everyone, whether Gentile or Jew, will be in awe of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and how much he can cleanse people. Amen? That very phrase right here was quoted in Romans 15, 20 to 21. Now Paul quoting that. And look how Paul used that verse. Romans 15, 20 to 21. Look at Paul. Great guy. Look at this. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where? Where Christ was not known. Paul says, when I go preach the gospel, I don't, I don't go try to find a bunch of Christians and try to tell them about Jesus. I go where Christ was not known before, and that's when I go and preach the gospel. Amen? Amen. So that, why? So that I will not be building on no one else's foundation. I don't need to. There's so many lost people. I don't need to build on somebody else's foundation. Amen? Amen. I think a lot of um, our church planting effort now should take a... A listen from that verse right here. Everybody's trying to build on somebody else's foundation. Amen? Anyways, rather, 
It is, rather it is written. Why he's going to the people who never heard? Here it is why, because he's quoting now Isaiah 53. Rather it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. So you see here how Paul is quoted Isaiah 52, 15 here to back up his theology that when he shares the gospel, he needs to go where Christ was never proclaimed before. Because even in the Old Testament says that those who never heard shall hear, and when they hear and they understand what Jesus has accomplished for them on the cross, that's when they're going to be in awe of him and what he has done on the cross. Amen? And this is how the servant will prosper. Remember how the whole song started? God said, Behold, my servant will prosper and he shall be exalted. How? By two things. Number one, by going all the way down to the cross and be so deformed and then being exalted all the way up to the highest places. And number two, by making nations and kings hear about him and what he has accomplished so much so that they cannot help it but to lift him up and exalt him. Amen? Amen? Amen. There is lessons for everyone in this room today. If you're not a Christian, if you're still trying to be made right with God through your own good works, if you're still trying to reach out to God, well, I have good news for you. You don't have to try anymore because Jesus has come down. He already paid the price on the cross. And because of what he has done on the cross today, he is able and he is willing to sprinkle you clean from your sins and cover your sins once and for all before the holy and righteous God. Amen? Amen. The question is not if Jesus wants to save you. The question is, do you want to be saved? And this is up to you. Jesus is not going to force you to save you. All what you have to do, just come and say, Jesus, cover me with your blood. Atone for my sins because of what you have done on the cross. Amen? Amen. Now, if you're a believer today, guess what? Guess how the servant will receive honor and glory and be exalted. When you and I go and tell those who never heard before. Amen? Amen. And if you don't do it, he's not going to get the glory that he deserves. Amen? Amen? Let's close our eyes and pray.